I'm like Jude here. Jude was the brother of Jesus, but he calls himself the brother of James. I'm not like Jude because I'm not the brother of Jesus, nor am I the brother of James. Don't get me wrong. But uh, when he started his book of Jude, and if you know the book of Jude, which is not, this is not in your notes, by the way. It's kind of a precursor because it kind of sets the tone for me, I hope. See, Jude was writing a book here to the believers there that, that he wanted to write a book different than what he wrote. It says here, beginning in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, to, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. He's trying to go down a path here where he just wants to speak a happy message. <laughs> but then he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once more all entrusted to the saints. So what Jude is saying here is that, you know, in my heart I want to preach to you the messages that are easy and good and fun and pleasing to hear. But yet I have something more pressing in my spirit. And I have to be faithful to what the Lord is calling and I felt that so many times in my heart and my life over the past few months in this church that I realized that some of the messages that have we've preached and talked about here have not been the real fun ones to listen to. And I understand that. But, you know, there's such an element of love in my heart for what needs to happen in this church and for this people that I'm willing to make the risk week after week if the Lord tells me to go a different direction, to go that direction. And so like for Jude... Jude says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once more all entrusted to the saints. And if you will read the book of Jude today, it's just one chapter, just go read it and see what he contended for. He was contending for the faith of those that, for false teachers and what would happen basically in the end time events. In the end time, which is, this was um, way back then, just imagine how much he would be urging today. Uh, with what was going on there. So um, that's just, I want to just make sure that we all recognize that, that the passages that we speak of and the messages that we speak here are never intended to be beat up, never intended to be negative, never intended to be a browbeating, never to be intended to what happened in Sunday school today where I stepped on everybody's toes, thanks to Michael who pointed it out to me. No, I'm only teasing. It, it, it's, it's, it's just that, you know, we, we have so many positive things to speak about. And this is positive. This is good. And so I want to continue to talk today on, on faith and works. We've been on that for a long time. But I, I, this is where we're at right now, faith and works. And, and in, according to the book that I was, I've read now, completed it, uh, by Gordon MacDonald in the book, Who Stole My Church, he speaks of a number of things that are really relevant in our society today. And so I want to speak about the things that he brought out in his book and about three different groups. And, uh, and it's important that we recognize that we need to allow agents of change to come into our heart and life. You know, Newton um, wrote three laws. And, and one of his laws, he, his first law is the law of motion. And his law says an object at rest will remain at rest unless, act, unless acted, on, 
acted on by an unbalanced force. So an object at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. An object in motion continues in motion with the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. What that means is that there is a, 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 mean, there is a natural tendency of objects to keep on doing what they're doing, and all objects resist changes to, in their state of motion. And in the absence of an unbalanced force, an object in motion will maintain a state of motion. If you were to able to transport yourself into outer space, since there is no air, air is one of those unbalanced forces that when I shoot a projectile through air, a bullet or a ball or anything of that nature, the resistance, the friction of air is that unbalanced force that puts force on the object and slows it down until it eventually stops. But if I was in outer space where there is no air, there would be no friction. Therefore, what I would throw in outer space would never stop. It would just continue to go and always go in that same direction. When they do um, moonshots and when they're putting uh, vehicles in space to travel to Mars, once they get the vehicle moving at that supersonic speed, then it just goes in that direction. On the, on the opposite side of that, if you have an object that is at rest by itself, it's not going to move. By itself, it will stay there until some agent of change comes in, until some unbalanced force comes in and, and moves that object. That will stay there forever. Nothing is going to move that jar of water off that desk until the wood dissolves and evaporates and gravity then can take the kinetic or the potential energy there and convert it into kinetic energy, which then makes it fall. All right? Now, I just moved it because I need a drink. Okay. Well, how does that, what does that mean to our spiritual life? See, in our spiritual life, we come into this life just like little Micah Brielle. By the way, that was her name, Micah Brielle. Isn't that pretty? I love Micah. I love Brielle. It's beautiful. But little Micah Brielle, even though right now she is in Jesus' hands, anything was to happen to Micah Brielle, she'd be in the hands of Jesus. But there's going to come an age, though, where she's going to come to an age of accountability. And once she, you, she or we have reached that age of accountability, there has to be something that happens in our lives that creates a change in us. Because once we get to that point where we can make a choice, we need to choose Jesus. Otherwise, our default destination is not heaven. So there's a change that has to come. So changes are a part of life, a part of conversion. And then, quite honestly, from there on after, we are on a high rate of change. Because our natural life, our natural desires will always go back to the most basic element, and that is our human nature. And that's not godly. Just so we know that, it's not godly. So change is always, always coming. And when I'm sitting still in my Christian faith, understand that, well, first of all, can you sit still in your Christian faith? Do we have a tendency to sit still in our Christian faith? Be honest, yes. 
we get to a comfortable spot in life where we say, okay, I'm, I'm saved. I'm good. Don't, I don't need to be pushed any further. Don't rock my boat any further. I, I'm, I'm good. And we sit there in that little comfortable state. And, and let me tell you that the enemy of your soul, the devil, is not sitting there in a comfortable state. He is roaming the earth looking for who he may, may devour. And here's, a little, here's another little fact of physics. I learned this playing football. If you don't want to get hurt, then you be the one moving faster. The person that brings the hit is typically the one that isn't injured. It's the person that's standing still that gets hit by a moving force. It's typically the one that feels the brunt of the collision. So if it works that way playing football, then it works that way in our Christian life as well. If I'm sitting still in my Christian life, comfortable and, 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 and happy, and the enemy comes around, roaring around, looking for whom he may devour, and he sees, oh, a sitting Christian, I'm going to hit him. And he gets up a ramp of speed, and he comes up, and he gives you a, a, whole, uh, you know, a whole shoulder right in your gut, and you know who's going to get hurt? That you are. Because you're not moving. But if you're moving, first of all, you're a harder target to hit. And secondly, if you're moving, your force through the power of the Holy Spirit has already conquered the enemy's force. So change is necessary. Moving is necessary. And this moves in, and this takes us now to the discussion that I want to get into for today regarding the book and, and what Gordon MacDonald talks about. And, and he talks about three basic groups in a church. And I want to spend the next few minutes talking about them. And, and, um, and I want us to be able to recognize in these, when we talk about these, where do I tend to line up in these groups? There's good news at the end. Group one is the generative group. Generative. Now, that's a weird name. It's a weird word. I don't think I've heard that word before. But he describes it. Generative is like a generator. And we all know what a generator is, right? A generator makes power. We lose power at home. We plug in a generator. Or we don't plug it in. There's no power to plug it into. We start it up. Okay, it's a gas-powered generator probably. And it creates electricity to run our house. It creates power. So a group that can be described as a generative group is a group that creates spiritual power and is conducive to new growth personally and in the group they are in. All right, and this group has some characteristics. Let's talk about the characteristics of a generative group. Number one, it has a strong sense of mutual purpose. A generative group is in unity together. We have a strong sense of mutual purpose. Group unity is bred. And future successes are much more reachable because we're unified in our approach to things. And this is very biblical. We see many times in Scripture, the King James Version translation uses the word unified and, and how many times that they were in one accord. They were in one accord in, in the day of Pentecost. They were in one accord as the young church, as the early church began to grow. They were in one accord. They were together. They were unified. And as a result of that, their body grew. The early church grew 
because they were unified and they were united by a strong sense of mutual purpose. Number two, a generative group is synergistic. Now, what does synergy mean? Synergy means it, it, it means that it's a combined effort being greater than the parts. Therefore, a synergistic group looks at all parts of the group as significant, no matter how apparently small they are or no how, apparently how small their effort is. Everyone's effort matters, and it all adds up to be a greater than any one part. Synergy, synonyms are, for synergy are working together, interaction, cooperation, combined effort, collaboration. Synergistic groups are groups that are, that are working in the same direction. They're collaborating. They're, they're interacting together. They're working towards a common goal. A synergistic group has no bench warmers. Everybody's a player. Everybody participates. And not only does everyone participate, but everyone's participation is urgently, effectively important to the success of the group. It's like the body of Christ. Isn't that a perfect example of a synergistic group, the body of Christ, where it says the eye and the nose, the ear? How can the body exist without any of them? That's a synergistic group. Number three, a, syner- a, um, a generative group uh, requires and has personal growth or personal maturing. People that make up a generative group are people that are, are growing or maturing in their own personal faith. It's personal. Our relationship with Jesus is personal. And as they grow and as they mature, they bring about a sense of maturing and, and, and growth to a group that one person feeds into the life of the other person. And we grow together, and that's why coming together is so important. That's why having church unity, that's why coming to the body and, and having somebody sitting next to you in church is so important because you're feeding into their life, and they're feeding into your life. And as you grow, we see ourselves as a church generating spiritual power because we're growing together personally, then we grow together corporately. How do we see some growth in our lives? Let's, let's talk about that real briefly. How do you see some growth? What, what are areas of growth? It's easy to say, well, I'm growing as a Christian, but what does that really mean? Well, I see some things, and maybe you can shout some things out too, but, but some of the things that we grow in are our love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus. And what is the evidence of that love? Well, it's a better prayer life, more desire to be in God's Word, more loving awareness of other people and what can be done to help them, putting others first. A prayer life is an evidence of Growing in my love for Jesus. You know, it was interesting in, in prayer, and this is a little, just a little side note, real quick, and then I will, I'll get off it. And this will be another topic for another message because I really think there's a lot to it. But prayer, prayer is such an interesting phenomenon. So absolutely phenomenal in that when we pray to God, we're not telling Him something He doesn't already know, nor are we telling Him how to answer because He has more wisdom than us. So, what's the purpose of prayer? purpose of prayer is relationship building. When God says, bring me your requests, he's serious about it. And when I pray to him, what I'm really doing is that I am 
building a relationship with God. So when I was talking to Summer today, or when, not last night, or whenever I was down there, I said, uh, Summer, I said, do you know how many people that you've asked them to talk to Jesus for you on? I mean, isn't that amazing? What we're doing is that she was a catalyst for many, many people to build their relationship with Jesus because they prayed. And that brings a whole new revelation to me about what prayer is about. And that gives me a whole new sense of love for Jesus because now when I pray, I'm building a relationship and I'm talking to my father and he's talking to me. All right, that's thrown in for free. List some other ways. Grow in understanding of God's purposes. How do we grow? We grow in God understanding the purposes of life. Better able to handle the difficult times in life. Knowing that God's plan is always better than mine. Always better. Always more comprehensive. Always bigger than mine. Whether I can understand it or not, God's plan is always bigger. So I'm growing in my ability to understand that. I'm growing in my ability to say, God, I, I love you. Not because you've made me comfortable. But I love you because who you are. And as I begin to grow as a Christian person, as I begin to mature in my faith, and I start to see that more important in my relationship, it allows me to handle the hard times in life when I don't understand why God hasn't answered the prayer that I wanted him to. When I don't understand that, it's because I know my relationship is growing to the point that I say, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you, God. I know your plan is bigger than mine, so I'm just going to walk in your plan. That's growing up. That's growing up. Knowing that God's longer-term perspective on my life is much more important than my temporary perspective. And then it, it helps us grow in the awareness of how God has gifted me and gifted you to work personally in the kingdom of God, to work personally in your garden. As you grow up, you start seeing that, hey, there are some things I can do. There are some responsibilities that I can take. So it helps you to grow up into those. So that's just some of the few of the ways that we can grow personally in our, in our church. And as we do that in our personal lives, and as we do that, our, the, the, the church of God becomes stronger. All right, number four, a generative group is never afraid of conflict. Never afraid of conflict. Um, you know, that doesn't mean they go out looking for it. It doesn't mean that they go out and say, all right, I, I'm, I'm bold, I'm strong, I'm powerful, now let's conflict. <laughs> no. We're not looking for conflict, are we? But, at the same, but, but, but we know conflict is a natural part of life. We know it's coming. We know it's there. And it's not how one avoids the conflict. It's how one handles the conflict. You, you can't put your head in the sand... And bury yourself and think conflict is going to bypass you because when you pick your head up to take a breath, it's still going to be there looking right at you. So rather than try to hide from it, recognize that it's coming. A generative group is never afraid of conflict. How we handle it is important. And why is it so important? See, conflict creates change. I, I didn't receive Jesus in my life until there was some conflict in my spirit. The Holy Spirit brings conflict. It brings a sense of, of, 
of disaster, it brings a sense of crisis in my life where I have to make a decision because you know if you've been saved, you know at that moment when you received Christ, right before that time, you had that, that bubbling in your soul. You had something that was calling you, something that was nagging, something that was just not right and uncomfortable. And the only way you were going to resolve that is to make a decision. You were either going to bury that feeling and ignore it, and you were going to run out of the building before you felt so conflicted, or you were going to say yes to Jesus and come in and say, yes, I hear your call. See, it takes conflict. It takes crisis. And that's just the beginning of that. There's going to be crisis. There's going to be conflict in the church, and there's going to be conflict outside the church. Generative groups aren't afraid of it, they go to God's word to deal with it, and they base their success on following through according to God's word, not on our own ideas. Number five, a generative group inspires other people who are looking on. Basically, a healthy, growing generative group is one that is attractive to others. A healthy body will naturally grow. As I, as my, in my physical body, I will naturally keep growing as long as I put nutrients into it. As long as I keep myself healthy and keep a good diet, my body will grow whether I want to or not. It just does. Babies grow to be big people. Puppies grow up to be dogs. Kittens grow up to be cats. We grow up to be spiritual people if we continue to keep our body healthy keeping a good sense of God's word, keeping a good prayer life. And as we do that, then, our, our body becomes attractive to those around us. And so that's why we preach God's word. That's why we teach truth. That's why we teach fundamental basics. That's why we're just going to keep keeping on doing this. And as we do this, and as we learn to be a generative group and, and grow in that, we will become attractive to our community. And our body will grow. I want to read a good example um, of a good of a generative group. There's a lot of generative groups in the Bible. If you go back and read God's word, you'll find a lot of groups of people that had these characteristics. Acts chapter two, verses forty-two through forty-seven, is an example of a generative group. This is the early church. And it says this about them they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved great example of a generative group. We'll come back to that a little bit later at the end. I want to move to the next group, though. The next group that was mentioned in the book was the habitual group. The third group is a toxic group. But we're going to talk about the habitual group first. See, the habitual group is kind of the middle of the road between the, the generative and the toxic the habitual group do things through repetition and in many cases without even really knowing why they're doing them it's just habit it's just who we are 
We've always done it this way. So therefore, why change? That's the habitual group, one of the characteristics. There's a comfort level that keeps them bound in small thinking and thus never risking much. They get bound up in their, in their own way of doing things and they become habitual. That's why the word habitual comes in. There's a lack of passion to be together much. And there's a lack of passion to do extraordinary things. So whatever they do is of little consequence, requiring little effort and little risk. Because they're so comfortable in their habits. This is a small group thinking mentality. Little to no excitement in this habitual group. People aren't attracted to them. Unless, of course, you happen to be in the inner core of the habitual group. This, this group is characterized by cliques. That little people, little groups come together and their own little likings and dislikes and they become little habitual groups. But they're not really open to visitors. Habitual groups can be exhausting because all their energy is spent on themselves and thus God is not able to re-energize them and to bring his supernatural passion and energy to them because they're so wrapped up in their own little cocoon of life. And they spend an awful lot of energy just keeping themselves comfortable. This is the thing that, point four, that kind of bothered me because I'm in this age group. According to the author, he identified this habitual group to be mainly made up of those people in the 50 to 70 degree or 70 year old range that have just about run themselves ragged in trying to do church that have just spent their life doing church and they're just tired of it they're just burned out they're exhausted they spend all the thing all the time doing good but maybe not with the passion of a generative group maybe not with the focus that the power of the Holy Spirit brings. Maybe in their own effort, their own work, and they've burned out. You know, the definition of burning out is doing something in your own effort, in your own power. I can get burned out really easy. Can you? Yeah. But when I find myself, when I'm doing things based upon my own ability, my own resources, I'm, in risking, I'm at risk of burning out. But when I work smarter and not hard, as my wife would tell me, that is good spiritual wisdom to work under the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit under what he's asking me to do. doesn't mean I don't work hard, but I just work smart. Finally, this group tends to sweep their problems under the carpet, so to speak, and try to smooth over the conflicts without facing them and dealing with them so that they, don't have to, so that they later on don't resurface later. It's so easy for us just to say, oh, I'm not going to deal with it. Let's just forget about it. Let's just lift up the old proverbial carpet and let's sweep it under the carpet, put the carpet back down and pretend it wasn't there. And then when we see that bump in the carpet later on, we'll just ignore it until somebody moves the carpet. And all of a sudden that bump's exposed. And you know what happens? It grew. I don't know how it does, but the problems under carpets grow. And they fester. And maybe because the Bible talks about the root of bitterness. You know, bitterness comes through undealt with conflict. And when 
when it's a root, it's interesting how he called it the root of bitterness and not a element of bitterness. Why? Roots grow. Roots take, they go deep. They move. They bring sustenance to something. And you don't want sustenance given to bitterness. Because once it's bitter, how do you ever sweeten it? So these groups tend to sweep their problems under the carpet. And they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they become empty and short-lived. And the effort to maintain it is overly, overwhelmingly exhaustive. And people just say, oh, I'm tired of it. And they walk away. People in habitual group tend to walk away from church. People in habitual group will either walk away or they'll find another church that they can start over again. Church hoppers are people that are typically habitual people. Therefore, we need to work to move out of that. Because if you don't, if, remember, we talked at the beginning that we are an agent of change. We're in, always in a state of change. And Newton's law is changing. Always Something's always changing. So here's the case. If you're in a habitual group, your progress is downward. And before long, you're going to turn into the toxic group, which is the worst. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why is it called toxic? See, toxic means death, or at least impending death. Something that is toxic is poisonous. Uh, you can have toxic chemicals. You can have toxic air. You can have toxic soil. Basically, something that causes or results in death. Toxicity is not a good thing because it, it causes problems. A toxic group is filled with people that have a number of elements as well. Let's talk about some of those. People that are toxic or toxic groups are made up from people that, that don't know how to bend to others in the group. They are a me-first mentality that puts my needs first over the concerns of the well-being of the bigger group around them. It's, they're, they're self-centered. They're me-focused. They measure everything they do by what's in it for me mentality. And if it's not obvious that I'm going to benefit directly from this activity, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to invest in something that doesn't benefit me first. It's one of the characteristics of a toxic group. This group is marked with low morale. There's almost no forward thinking or positive input. Thus, this, this group is marked with a sense of hopelessness and impending death and impending doom. There is no positive direction. There's no positive movement. They become very territorial and hold on to information and, and power. Power is information. And information is power. And they hold that to themselves for their own personal gain. Because if I know something you don't, then I have power over you. And they hold on to things from the past and hold on to grudges. Remember the root of bitterness? Well, this is growing in. This is what it comes out of it. You become toxic in your bitterness. They are, number three, blamers of others for the problems that they are facing. They blame others. They, they come and almost all their energy goes into, into conversations with people of who's at fault, whose problem, who caused the problem, rather than facing up to their own faults and their own failures. They become more a part of the problem than part of the solution. And it's easier to blame others rather than digging deep into one's own heart to see what the real root of the problem is. 
They tend, number four, to drag down the larger part of the group. Lots of energy is spent trying to resolve problems on the surface without really dealing with the root of the issue. Therefore, they, therefore they, they create a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hoopla, a lot of, of, of drama in the problems. And that requires a lot of damage control later on. Because the church sees it. Other people in the church see it. And the community sees it outside. And all of a sudden it's like, what's going on up there? Why can't people get along? Because we are a toxic group of people. It's a me-first mentality. It's what's in it for me. It's not how can I serve you, brother and sister in Christ. It's how are you going to serve me. And if, you don't, if I don't get my way, I'm taking my ball and going home. We all know that, don't we? We've all been there. There tends to be a lot of narcissism in this group. Narcissism is defined as self-admiration, self-adoration, self-absorption. Basically, a narcissistic person is one that places himself above the rules and basic conduct of others. They will hold others to the rule, but not themselves. Uh, Can I be honest with you? I've been that. I've been a little narcissistic in my life. Speed limits for somebody else. Isn't that right, Jason? We've been down that discussion, haven't we? I mean, how simple can it be, but yet how growing up damaging can it be? Because when I place myself above the rules, wow, what am I doing? I am setting myself up for disaster. And when as a group we set ourselves up against the rules, oh my goodness, watch out. That's not a church. That's a cult. That's evilness. Toxic groups, number six. Toxic groups tend to destroy people. They get cynical, burned out, slanderous, bitter. And they just determine never to be a part of anything like that again as they destroy the people that they're with. They drop out of church. They drop out of society. So we're, what I've, I've really painted a bleak picture here. That's why I want to go back now. I want to go back now that we know habitual and toxic. Let's go back to generative. Let's go back and focus on what we are. I believe this church is on its path to being very generative. I am very encouraged with what I see happening in this church, with the power that's being created. The generative nature of of our body is so refreshing, so freeing. I love it. Let's go back and let's talk about the generative part. Go back and read. Let's go back and look at Acts 2.42 for a second here again. Let's look at this group again, and let's, let's see how we model this group. All right, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone is filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and held everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. Let me ask a couple questions here. Do you see a common purpose? What was the common purpose of this group? They were devoted to each other. They were devoted to each other's well-being, both physically and spiritually. They broke bread together. They dealt together. They prayed together. How were they synergistic? 
They became a living organism working and moving together as a unit. They encouraged each other. They, 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 they held each other's needs bigger than their own. They became, their individual pieces became, as they put them together, became bigger than themselves. And the group continued to grow because of the synergy that was created in their group. What about personal growth or maturing? Do you think these people were growing? Do you think the apostles grew after Jesus left? Do you think that that all the disciples were at that perfect state of maturity when Jesus left? Or do you think they might have grown a little bit more after that fact? I think they were on such a high rate of change, high rate of growth, that they were off the charts. They were growing every day, and not because they were reading the Bible, but because most of them were writing the Bible. (laughs) They were living their life as Scripture. They were growing. They were maturing. And all of the church was on that path with them. Now, do you think they had any conflict? Yeah. I've got to believe these men had a lot of conflict in the church. I've got to believe they had a lot of issues to deal with. You know, one, one good example is in Acts 5. We're not going to take the time to read it, but that's Ananias and Sapphira. Little conflict there, right? For those who don't know the story, real quick, we'll capsulize it. Basically, the church was growing, and everybody was, as we said earlier here, they were bringing their possessions and selling their property. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to get in on it. So, and they wanted to be one of the bigger givers. I'm just speculating here. But they wanted to be one of the bigger ones. So they said, hey, let's sell our property, and let's bring the money to the church. Let's give it to the church. But let's not give it all. Let's keep a little bit for ourselves, but we'll tell the church that we're giving it all. Nobody will know. So they did. So here comes Ananias. Comes in, brings his church, brings his, his offering to, to Peter. And, uh, you know, Peter takes the offering and says, hey, thanks. But something happened in Peter's soul. The Holy Spirit was a finder-outer. <laughs> he was a truth-teller here. And, and Peter said, I don't know the exact, I don't know exactly how he said it to him, but basically the truth came out to say, Ananias, was this all the money you sold the property for? And Ananias must have said yes. He lied. Conflict. He was struck dead at the moment. And even as they were taking out his body, here comes Sapphira, his wife, same thing happened. She lied. She was struck dead. Conflict. Wow, pretty serious stuff. What do you think it would happen if, at our moment of disobedience today, that people died at the altar? Whoa. Wake up. Attention getter. Maybe church would be a little more serious. The problem here becomes, though, is that because we get away with it a little bit, see, the consequences may not be as immediate, but understand they're as severe. The consequence may not come today because I might get away with it today. But understand the consequences are just as severe come judgment day. And that means eternal punishment that lasts forever. So conflict arose. It wasn't that they avoided it. It's how they dealt with it. How many want to go back to those days? How many want to go back to... Ananias and Sapphira days. Thank the Lord we don't have to, but I'm telling you, I think in many ways to our American society today, that's, that's a problem. It's a 
problem because we think we're getting away with something. Just like that little video that Riley showed. It was awesome, Riley. The little video of, of, of that man eating his pie before God. You know, he didn't even offer to share it. What did he do? He covered up his eyes so he couldn't see God. If I can't see God, God can't see me. That's not, that reminds me of like a little kid you know, coming into a, a bathroom. Close your eyes, I'm coming in. You know, but he's taking a bath. Like, like, you know, by him closing his eyes, you won't see his nakedness. You know, that's silly. But that's the way we treat with God, isn't it? You know, as long as I can't see God, he can't see me. Wow, dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. That sounds like the robot on Lost in Space. Danger, danger, danger. As we conclude today, I want to challenge us. What are we today? What kind of group do we want to be? I don't want to be habitual. I don't want to be toxic. I want to be generative. And we are moving in that direction. And I want to, I want to say thank you for that. The way things are just naturally starting to grow, all the different things that are happening in our body, it's so refreshing. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a business meeting. And in that business meeting, uh, we want to use this as an opportunity for a look to the future. I have on the, uh, the foyer, on the table in the foyer, I put a, a sheet out there. And for lack of better names, I, I call it life, life groups. Okay? Life groups at Center Point Assembly. And so this is what I'd like to do, if you're willing, is write your idea or purpose of what you'd like to do as your own ministry group setting. What is the idea? What's the purpose? You can put a biblical reference there if you have one, or if it's just fellowship, just fellowship. What's the meeting time or times that you would propose to do this? And what's the age group and what's the gender? Is it a, a men's group? Is it a ladies group? Is it a kids group? Is it a young adults? Is it both? Whatever. And, and just use, take some of these, if you will, and just brainstorm yourself, bring them in, and let's talk about them in a couple weeks, three weeks, the 29th. And, um, and let's just allow the Lord to bring new ideas, new ministries into our body. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? Is that generative? Is that bringing power? Yeah. That's allowing the Holy Spirit to bring us power. We don't need to do it like we've always done it. We can get out of this box, and then we can be powerful. Amen? You know, I, I, I just love to think about future stuff. And I love to think about what it's going to be like after the millennium. You know, and the process of going through all of that is going to be awesome. You know, the rapture, uh, Jesus coming back, and winning the final victory, living a thousand years on life you know, here on earth, and, and just being a part of that group of people that are totally free. I mean, totally free from a problem. Can you imagine that? Can you even begin to fathom that? What it's going to be like to be able to look outside and to see the sun and see the atmosphere around you, listen to the birds, and not have a care in the world other than to worship Jesus. Wow. What a generative group that's going to be. What a powerful group that's going to be. And we today have the opportunity to begin to be a part of that. We begin to practice that today in our church by what we're doing right now. 
we're beginning to experience just a little bit of that. Amen. What a blessing. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Let's just sing the song that Jackie's playing and just celebrate for a minute here before we go home and let's just worship the Lord in our in our offering to Him in Jesus' name. Father, just go with us today as we go to our homes. I pray, Lord, that you will just give us new ideas. Lord, I pray that the generative power of the Holy Spirit would flow through us as a body and that we would just be on fire for you, that people would be drawn to what you're doing in us. Lord, that we would have this synergistic approach, that we would put others first. Lord, that we would deal with issues appropriately. God, I pray that, you, that we would be like the Acts 242 group, that we'd be like that new church, and that you would be pleased. And you would cause the numbers to grow. And you would bring growth into the church, Father. Help us. We dedicate our hearts and lives to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.